turn to Hebrews 5. We've been in the book of Hebrews for several weeks and uh, continuing to to move through. It's really a fascinating book. Uh, there, there's a, a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley who over the last co- couple of years has kind of positioned himself to make a lot of very provocative statements. This last summer he said that the apostles unhitched the church from the New Testament, or from the Old Testament. They unhitched the church from the Old Testament. They just literally said nothing in the Old Testament matters anymore. Nothing. Um, If that were true, the book of Hebrews could not exist because of the constant reliance it has on the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and so as, as we look at it, we're looking at it within a, a specific context. It, it really is a sermon. I heard it described that way at a conference earlier this year. It's really a sermon presented to Jewish Christians in the first century, urging them to remain faithful to Christ and the gospel rather than abandoning Christ and drifting away back to uh, Judaism, back to the temple rites and services. When we study scripture, we study from a what's called a historical grammatical foundation, from a historical grammatical perspective. The, the grammatical part of it is, should be pretty clear. We look at the actual text. We look at the words that are here. We understand the words and the phrases and the clauses and how the sentences work together, just like we would read anything else. We, we read a newspaper article. We read a book. We read a magazine. We, we read scripture. Um, God is the best communicator there is. There's no better communicator than God. There's no clearer material than the scriptures. The problem is not that they're not clear. The problem is that we don't understand or that we don't want to understand. Um, there's also a historical aspect of understanding. So I, I just want to remind you of the historical context of, of what we're seeing in the book of Hebrews and especially in this chapter. Israel's history was marked by frequent periods of, of idolatry and spiritual unfaithfulness. Um, when the people were delivered out of Egypt and then spent 40 years in the wilderness, that 40 years in the wilderness almost from the beginning, was one of rebellion and even idolatry. In the first, sometime in that period of the first year, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and the, uh, the, the people are waiting and waiting. They get tired of waiting and waiting. And so they say to Aaron, make us a god. Make us a god. And so Aaron has them take their golden earrings off and they give their golden earrings to him and he makes a, a golden representation of a calf. The people call the calf Yahweh. So almost from the very beginning, they are launching out into idolatry. Um, at the end of that 40-year period of time, eventually that second generation, crossed the Jordan River led by Joshua Joshua then died. He lived 110 years. 
Um, so 40 years, maybe a generation goes by. He dies, and then there is a time called the period of the judges. The period of the judges lasts about 410 years, as I counted, and counted them up last night. Out of those 410 years, 114 years were spent under the judgment of God for idolatry. It's a repeated story in the book of Judges. Israel did evil. what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord brought in the Malachites, Hittites, Moabites, whoever it was, to punish them. And they were oppressed for X number of years. And then God raised up blank to deliver them. And there was peace in the land for X number of years. And then Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's this repeating song. It's this repeating song. Eventually, the time of of the judges comes to an end with the people demanding a king like the nations have. And God finally says, okay, you can have Saul. Saul proves to be an unfaithful king. And so God uh, cuts off his dynasty and his family and raises up David to be king. And then David's son Solomon takes over as king. Solomon becomes king. Solomon's known for his wisdom, but Solomon is also known for his idolatry. And because of his idolatry, the kingdom is divided into the the, the two kingdoms, northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. The southern kingdom, which I, I would consider to have begun with King Saul, the southern kingdom lasted 473 years. There were 24 kings in the southern kingdom, 14 of whom were called wicked. So more than half. And 180 of those 473 years are uh, ruled by these wicked kings. The northern kingdom, when it began, um, was called Israel. There were 19 kings in Israel, and they ruled for 213 years, and every single one of them was wicked. Not one of them is called good. So when you put all of that time together, the time of the judges and the time of the kings, it's a period of more than 900 years, 400 years of which the people are under God's judgment for idolatry. That's not a great track record. That's just not a great track record. Um, During the time of the kings, King Ahab, Queen Jezebel are in power. Elijah came near to all of the people because of the idolatry in the land and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him but the people didn't answer him a word. Why didn't they answer him? Because they're hesitating between two opinions. What are they going to say? It's it's a little bit like the modern equivalent of, where do you want to have dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to have dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to have dinner? And they're just kind of paralyzed there. They're, They're sitting on a spiritual fence and hedging their bets. Should we trust Yahweh or should we trust Baal? We don't know. We're going to hang on to both. We'll just cling to both. Well, Baal's fine with that. Baal doesn't care at all about that because Baal doesn't exist. Baal isn't real. Baal is a human invention with a a satanic source. Satan has sponsored that. But Baal is simply a, a figment of people's imagination. But Yahweh did care, and he made it clear to his people throughout their history that he would never accept partial worship, He would never accept split devotion, divided loyalties. So as you you jump forward from 
the end of the period of the kings, 700 years or so, 600 years to the time of the first century, the Jews reading this letter are facing the exact same, same circumstance. They're hesitating between two opinions. Should we cling to Jesus or should we go back to the temple? There were clearly Jews. The, the apostles were all Jews who said, we've let go of the temple. We're clinging to Christ with both hands. And there were clearly others, the men who were called Judaizers, who were full-on temple people who have simply added the name of Jesus. And they're, they're doing kind of reverse evangelism. Um, evangelism means to, to share the, the good news. Um, what they were doing would, would have been called cacavangelism. Cacavangelism. E- Evangelism, the, the E comes from good. Kaka is evil. So I'm not sure how you put all that together. But they're doing the reverse. They're going to Jewish Christians and saying, you should abandon your total reliability on Christ and come back to the temple. And then, of course, you have those who are simply caught between those, those two opinions. There are a lot of reasons why somebody might have fallen away. They were being, they were under persecution. They were suffering poverty. There were fears about maybe we left what was good. There's also just the reality that, that, that new Testament church was actually about what we have here. They they tended to be small groups. There's some unimpressive guy who's sharing from the scriptures. They sing together with choirs that are not very good. And that's kind of what it is. And what they remember is the temple, which is really spectacular. It's just impressive in in every way. Last weekend, Linda and and a couple of the other ladies went to see the Messiah in, in Lincoln. And professional orchestras, some professional lead singers, and a massive volunteer choir. It's really a spectacular thing. It's not one guy with an out of tune mandolin singing badly. It's really an impressive sight. That's what they're concerned with. But one of the reasons that somebody would be tempted to leave Jesus and go back to the temple is the concern that the temple had a priesthood, that the temple actually had this visible manifested mediatory process that stood between man and God. And so Hebrews 5 addresses that issue. Now that's a a little bit of a lengthy introduction, but you're with me. Let's look at the, the, the text. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as much for the people or as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and was heard because of his piety. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author begins by just defining basically what human high priests were like and what the human priesthood was like. Let's talk about those Aaronic high priests. Uh, we, we see, for one thing, that they were taken from among men in verse 1. Every high priest taken from among men. They're just men. They're not a special kind of man. They're not angels. They're not spirits. They're not a unique kind of, of creation. They're just men. The second thing that we see is that they were appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. I, I think a good comparison to this is that high priests are like public defenders. Public defenders are assigned by the court to represent a defendant, but they represent the defendant according to the rules of the court. The high priest is appointed by God to represent people who are ignorant, misguided, filled with weaknesses, as it says in the text. But they have to do that according to the law of God and the the rules that God has established for that, that purpose. That's the things pertaining to God. And And let me just stop you and say here that the fact that Israel had a priesthood didn't make them special. By the time Jesus comes around, of, of course, I think Israelites would have said, well, we're special. We have a priesthood. You're, you don't get a priesthood because you're special. You get a priesthood because you're needy. You don't get a public defender because you're special. You get a public defender because you're guilty and you're incapable of defending yourself. We see also that because of their weaknesses, priests could at least potentially deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Uh, we're told that they were, to, they were also beset with weakness in verse 2. We're told that they were obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for themselves. Priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinners. Well, who better to understand what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be weak, what it means to be frail, what it means to be tempted than somebody else who, who faces that very thing? Uh, unfortunately, it didn't mean that every priest did deal gently with those who were ignorant and misguided. Uh, we, we see in 1 Samuel 1, the high priest Eli treats the woman Hannah shamefully because he assumes that she's drunk when she's actually praying with, with a, a pure heart and a righteous heart. And most priests during Jesus' time tended to view the people with contempt and disregard and loathing, not with, with kindness, not with, uh, uh, not with graciousness, not with longing to help, but with this sense, we're the priesthood, we're special, we're better, we're smarter. And that kind of leads to the, the next point. We see that pre high priests are not volunteers. Verse 4 says, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, Aaron was a, of the tribe of Levi, <clears throat> and when God established the principles for uh, the, the, the tribes to receive land, there were 12 tribes that came out of Egypt. 11 of the 12 tribes received allotments of land. The tribe of Levi didn't receive any land. They were to be supported by the other tribes as they served the people in the things pertaining to God. Within the tribe of Levi, there is the family of Aaron, and the family of Aaron become the priestly line. 
So in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you'll read about priests and Levites. All priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. In order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite of the tribe of Levi, but you also had to be of the family of Aaron. You had to be in direct descent to Aaron. Um, So men are not priests because they're awesome, wonderful, kind, volunteering, gentle, socially-minded people. They're priests because of birth. They're priests because they're born into the tribe of Levi and into the family of Aaron, and provided that they, that they met a couple of basic qualifications, they would serve as priests. Those qualifications mainly have to do with physical uh, defilement. Somebody who was born with cerebral palsy, born blind. Someone who had had an accident, lost a finger, was crippled and maimed in some way, could not enter the, the sanctuary to serve as a priest because they were physically disabled. Being physically disabled is not a sin, but it is a picture of what sin does. And God says, as you stand before me, you're to represent the holiness that I require. So a priest who stands before God with a crutch because he's missing a leg is actually a picture of the unrighteousness that the priest is there to uh, mediate. So these men are priests by the providence of God. We, we could say by the accident of birth, except there are no accidents of birth. It's by the providence of God. They're not priests because of the goodness of their own hearts. And then he moves to Jesus. The verses 5 through 10 deal with Jesus kind of in comparison and contrast. So what do we see about Jesus as high priest? Well, we see that he was chosen by God. Uh, verse 5 says he didn't glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but rather God the Father chose him. God directs the incarnation and says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God the Father anoints Jesus to be the high priest. He says, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was unwilling to become a high priest. It does mean that the the Trinity wasn't sitting around in heaven and Jesus said, hey, I've got an idea. What if I go down, take on humanity, live a sinless life, die as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, rise from the dead, and what do you think? And God the Father says, yeah, that's a good plan. That could work. He didn't create it himself. He was delegated by God. The second thing we see is that Jesus' priesthood is an eternal priesthood. He's compared to Melchizedek in verse 6. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek... Uh, is is dealt with more fully in chapter 7, and so we'll go into more depth into him in chapter 7. But kind of quickly, in Genesis chapter 14, Lot, Abram's nephew, is kidnapped by men who are called the kings of the valley. Now, at that time, a king was essentially kind of the mayor of the city. They might have had it by birth, by right, by dynasty, but they weren't the king over a nation. It wasn't like being the king of England. It was a king over Norfolk. So you, you have the, the king of Norfolk and the king of Battle Creek and the king of Tilden and the king of, of Plainview and the king of Hader all get together and kidnap Lot's nephew. And then uh, the, the, king of, the king of Center and the king of Bloomfield and the king of Wausau and the king of, of Neely get together with Abraham and they go, they go to battle. Abraham raised up a couple of hundred of his own men. He went and rescued Lot and his family. And on the way back... It says that they were met by Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, uh, which is king of peace. 
He is the king of, of Salem um, and called a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham gives a tithe of what he took to Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears on the scene and he's already a high priest. We don't see his mom. We don't see his dad. We don't see his birth. We don't see his uh, anointing as high priest. When he arrives, he's simply there and he's a high priest. And literally two verses later, he's gone. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. In verse 20, he's done. The next time we see his name mentioned is Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, it's the prophetic words that we have here. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the, the, the historical man is in three verses of the Old Testament very early. We don't see the beginning of his priesthood. We don't see him die. And so there's no end to his priesthood. And so God says to Jesus, using Melchizedek as a model, you're a priest like that. You have an eternal priesthood. You have a priesthood that lasts forever. Now, with that eternal priesthood came a, a suffering life. In the days of his flesh, it says in verse 7, Jesus offered up both tears and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. The days of his flesh are the days of his earthly life and ministry. Jesus offers up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, that is, with wailing and tears, with howling, and tears with agony and tears and he prays to God who is able to save him from death he was heard but being heard doesn't mean that he didn't die being heard means that he was strengthened so that he would be able to endure what was coming so that he would be able to, to endure the father's wrath upon the cross um, as Jesus is dying as he is hanging there on the cross, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, as the guilt of all mankind, the guilt of all who would believe in him was poured out upon him, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him in punishment of that guilt, then God the Father has turned away from the Son of Man hanging there on the cross. And Jesus senses that and he knows that and he, he bursts out with this, this howl of pain and of anguish. But at the very same time, because God can't not be God and God can't be divided, we also know that God the Father and God the Spirit are strengthening God the Son to continue to endure the suffering that they're going through. The, uh, this idea of the atonement that the Bible presents is called the substitutionary atonement. It means that we were guilty, we deserved to die. God sent his son, his son became the substitute and he bore the full penalty. There are people who call that cosmic child abuse because Jesus was innocent of anything wrong and God made him pay for our sins. Um, I don't know if this example would make sense to you, it would make sense to Linda and I. It will once she hears it. Um, we, we sent our son into surgery almost three dozen times. And there were times that we sent him into surgery with tears. 
He was in tears. We were in tears. Because it's miserably hard to do. We subjected him to that suffering because it was what was best. Not because it was fun. Not because it was easy. It wasn't good in the sense that it made us feel good in the moment. But it was necessary. The atonement... Is It was not God the Father saying, okay, finally at last I can lose my temper, I can completely blow it, I can abandon myself to hateful rage and pour out every bit of ugliness that I have. The atonement is uh, an act of careful, surgical, precise judgment. And it, it, it exactly correlates to sending that little child into surgery, knowing that there's suffering involved but that it's necessary. If we could have, we would have taken that pain and suffering for our son. We couldn't, but we could be with him to strengthen him so that he was never alone. We see that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. There, there's an ancient Greek proverb that, that was in the form of a rhyme that you could memorize if I say it one time. Pathane, methane. Pathane, methane. And it simply means to suffer is to learn. To suffer is to learn. Learning obedience from the things that he suffered didn't, didn't mean that Jesus was disobedient before he suffered. But Jesus had to be proven righteous. He had to be shown to be righteous in every way. And so as his life progressed, every new step of life, every new step of suffering was a, a more intense uh, period of obedience. Obedience cost him more and more and more and more as he stepped and moved toward Calvary and until he finally assumed the cross took it and submitted himself to death and then Jesus is the source of eternal salvation in verse 9 having become perfect he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation the purpose of Jesus suffering was to make him the source or the foundation or the grounds of of our salvation Again, with those ideas about theories of, an, of atonement, that there, there are theories of the atonement that say Jesus' death was simply as an example. Jesus just died as an example of how we should live. That, or Jesus lived as an example of how we should live. Jesus died uh, showing love, and that's what we should do is we should show love. If Jesus lived and died as an example of how you're to live and die, God might as well send you to hell now. Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never failed in that example. Every temptation that came, he withstood. He didn't dodge out of the way. He withstood it to the maximum point. He wore down every temptation that came to him. The tempter left him because the tempter had no more room to go. Luke says uh, the tempter left and for a more uh, the temper the tempter left until a more opportune time. And then the tempter came back, and the, the temptation was worse. It was fiercer. And Jesus simply withstood it, knowing what was happening, and never sinned. If his example of a perfect, flawless, sinless life is what God requires of us, God may as well send us to hell now. Because we can't do that. We can't live that way. Jesus isn't an example of how to live right. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for sinners who obey him, repenting of sin, believing the gospel, and entrusting ourselves entirely to him because he actually bore on the cross God's wrath against us. 
So bringing this home, we, we've, we've seen the, some of those basic elements of the Aaronic priesthood. We've seen the basic elements in contrast with the Jesus high priesthood. Our world is, is as filled with religious people as, as the ancient world. You know, and the, we, we've got people today who would say they're naturalists, they're materialists, they're evolutionists, they are atheists, they, they don't believe in a spiritual realm at all. Um, they do. The Bible says they do. They're just suppressing it. But in the ancient world, there was no such thing as somebody who didn't believe in, in the supernatural. It, that's a relatively modern kind of a concept. Um, certainly during the, the time that Israel was in the land, all of these other nations had their gods, multiple gods. And they used those gods as a way of defending. And in fact, when they won a battle, they said, our God is bigger than your God. My God can beat up your God, basically. The same thing is true in the first century with the Jews who are the first, the Jewish Christians who are the first recipients of this letter. They're, they're hesitating between two opinions. Um, there, there are many, of course, who talk about Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the grace of God, the love of God, righteousness, having been saved. Um, but who, on the other hand, were still wanting to cling to the temple, clinging to the rites, clinging to the priesthood, clinging to the rituals, clinging to circumcision, clinging to, clinging to all of the things that made them good Jews. And the writer here is saying, you, you can't do that. God is a jealous God. He demands absolute loyalty. He won't accept mixed, mixed worship. You need to let go of the temple, and you need to cling solely to Christ. And don't think that Jesus is incapable of saving you. Why do people hang on to both systems? Well, some are just afraid that, that Jesus is going to be insufficient. Linda and I know, know people who live in large cities. We're from Southern California. Um, if you lived in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you could go out to the same corner every, every afternoon at 2 o'clock and, and share the gospel with people and never see the same person. There's just a constant flood of new people. We don't get that in, in Norfolk. We don't get that in Creighton. We don't get it in, in small-town Nebraska. Uh, Linda and I also have known believers who live overseas, who live among Muslims or Buddhists or animists, uh, people whose beliefs are clearly non-Christian, and they're really easy to distinguish. They're really easy to, to tell apart. If, if you're in... Uh, if you're in Central Africa and you see a man with a, a skull cap and three wives trailing him, you know you're not dealing with a Christian. If you're in Laos and, and you're invited to a spirit calling ceremony, as, uh, as Dorothy's brother was on, on multiple occasions, or when they're, they're cremating a, a dead relative and praying for the spirit and, and all that stuff. It's just really clear you're not dealing with a Christian worldview. But we live in a time when, when people are doing the same thing. They want to hold on to Jesus and then they want to hold on to the other stuff. They want to hold on to their good works. They want to hold on to their good intentions. They want to hold on to something else. It's Jesus and. And the same truth applies for us and for those people today is applied in, in scriptural times. God is a jealous God. He won't accept divided worship or shared loyalties. And so we need to let go of what can't save and cling to Jesus alone. Uh, I've had people say, 
well, just in case. Just, just in case what? Just in case Jesus lied? Just in case he's incompetent? Just in case uh, your sin will overwhelm his ability to forgive? So I, I just would issue you this invitation. Hopefully nobody from the museum will hear this and take it literally. But you could come this week, come tonight, and, and rip the top off of this room and then fill it, leave the walls, and then fill it with the grace of God. And then when you get up tomorrow, every sin you commit, take a spoon, grab some of that grace and throw it out. And see how far you get tomorrow. And then when you go to bed tomorrow night and go to sleep, God's going to top off the grace. At the end of Romans 5, it says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. The Greek text says where sin abounded, grace superabounded. The sense is that if you double sin, you triple grace. If you square sin, you cube grace. You simply can't out-sin the grace of God. It's not possible because where there is sin, there is more grace. So those who would say, I need this just in case, are actually blaspheming and insulting the Son of God. That's where we get into when we get into Hebrews chapter 10. It's part of what's taking place when he says, beware of trampling the blood of the Son underfoot. How do you do that? Well, you treat it lightly and you go back to something else that you think has more significance. Or you treat the blood of the Son as ineffective. So I want you to understand, I hope that you understand that those are blasphemous ideas. God is a jealous God. He, he won't share his glory. He won't be treated as, an, as a menu option in a religious restaurant. I hope that the Lord and pray that the Lord will give you opportunities to speak to others who are hesitating between two opinions. In our world, here in the Midwest, most of the people that we meet who are religious were, were raised either Catholic or Lutheran. Then you've got some Methodist and some Episcopalian, and you've got a sprinkling of others. The majority of people in churches everywhere don't know the Lord. That's just the reality. Just because somebody says that they're a Christian, just because somebody uses the name Jesus, doesn't make them a Christian. Remember the story of the the golden calf. What happens? Moses is up on the mount speaking to Yahweh and receiving the law from Yahweh. The people are down on the plain. They get tired of waiting. They go to Aaron and say, make us an idol. Aaron takes their gold. He makes a a, a calf out of gold, and then they call the calf Yahweh. And so if you get in a conversation this week with a Catholic, with a Lutheran, with a Methodist, with an Episcopalian, and they say, well, you have your Jesus, I have my Jesus, take them to that story. Just take them in your Bible to that story and say, was that calf Yahweh? If they say yes, I don't know what you say to them. Anybody who's, who's got any sense in their head will say, well, no. That calf was not Yahweh. It was something they simply called Yahweh. So how do you know your Jesus is Jesus? You call something Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? You only know it's Jesus if, if it matches the, the descriptions that we see in Scripture. Well, my Jesus would never send anybody to hell. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. My Jesus is going to make me healthy always if I have enough faith. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. If, if we care about the Lord Jesus and love him with all our heart, if we really understand the nature of the judgment to come, 
We won't want to preserve somebody's temporary feelings over their eternal destiny. We'll run the risk of hurting their feelings in order to speak truth to them. doesn't mean we have to be ugly about it. It doesn't have to, we, we have, mean we have to be confrontational or nasty about it, but we do need to be clear. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, he saves us. He doesn't need any help, so we can let go of anything else we're hanging to and cling solely to Christ. That's what he calls us to do. Now, what do you do if you find that you're actually clinging to something else? This happens, I think, at least occasionally for a Christian. They'll realize, I've been putting hope in this. I've been putting confidence in this. Well, what do you do when you realize I'm trusting in that, not Christ. Well, you repent, right? You let go of that thing. You let go of that thing. And you cling solely to the Lord. Because he doesn't need any help. He's, he's got it himself. He's taken care of it himself. Ephesians 4 says this, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And I think what we see here, I know what we see here in Hebrews chapter 5, is there's one priesthood, and there's one priest in that priesthood. And he's utterly sufficient to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, and we ask that you would um, work this lesson deeply within us, um, like the leaven that is the kingdom of God, knead it within our hearts so that we would understand it and believe it. Lord, give us opportunities this week, as you will, according to your providence, to simply ask others if they're holding two opinions, if they're hesitating between two, if they've been afraid to commit themselves completely to Christ, and to urge them to do that. Lord, make us teachable, so that if we're doing that, We will hear you tell us, and if other people speak to us, we're willing to listen. We want to glorify you above all else. We want to worship you and you alone, because we know that, Jesus, there is one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and that's your name. There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus, and that's you. We thank you for this. Ask that you would bless those who are not with us this morning and remind them of your love and your comfort. And in your holy name we pray, amen.